Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, C.C. Connolly, President and CEO of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. C.C., thank you so much for setting aside time, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Patty. You're most welcome. So for the benefit of our listeners, would you care to tell us a little bit about the ACHP and your work. Very happy to. The Alliance of Community Health Plans, as the name suggests, is a group, a somewhat small but selective group of health plans that are nonprofit, community-based, and aligned with providers. And that means that they're either part of an integrated system or that they have these very close partnerships in their communities with physicians and hospitals. And we believe that that model of the health plans and the providers being uh, really aligned around the patient and the community makes for a very successful approach in healthcare today. And so our work really grows out of that belief and that view that a business model of payer-provider partnership is best for patients and communities. We see better health outcomes often at lower costs. And so here in Washington, D.C., where we are based, we advocate for that at the federal level in Congress and in the administration. We also do a lot of work with our clinical innovation department around best practices, shared learning, and also research. And we also have a market competitiveness team that, again, looks at that model and really tries to document the great success stories, does a lot of benchmarking, comparative analysis, et cetera. So that's a bit about ACHP and our wonderful members. Thank you. Thank you. It's very interesting, the kind of uh, membership that uh, you serve. Just for my understanding, what is the size of your membership? How many such health plans are out there in the country that are closely affiliated with uh, uh, community health systems? Sure. So we have 25 member companies. They range in size from a couple that have enrollment of 100,000 covered lives, all the way up to Kaiser Permanente with the 11 or 12 million covered lives. We and our members are present in 35 states plus the District of Columbia, representing now about 22 million covered lives. Uh, That's very helpful. So, Cece, your organization uh, recently published an interesting survey on how COVID-19 has shifted consumer attitudes to healthcare. Would you care to discuss one or two of the top findings? And was there anything there that surprised you? 
Sure, I'd, I'd love to chat about it. This was a national survey of adults 18 and over across the entire country, a good demographic mix, if you will, to really uh, represent the nation. And we were most interested in the way in which the COVID-19 pandemic has altered patients' views about going to a doctor's office or hospital, how they are interested in receiving healthcare services now and in the future. And in many respects, the data validated what we've been hearing anecdotally, but it's always so powerful to get the data. And so a very sizable 72% of the respondents said that the pandemic had dramatically changed their use of healthcare services over the past few months. Mm -hmm. And what we saw consistently was that through the early months of the crisis and for at least the next three to six months, high levels of anxiety about going to a doctor's office, a hospital, an urgent care clinic, really any of those in-person sites for elective procedures, diagnostic procedures, tests, etc. We heard from, in particular, those individuals who said they had chronic conditions and senior citizens in our survey had even higher levels of reluctance to return to in-person facilities for probably at least the next six months So as you can imagine, that has very important implications for the health sector and potentially large implications for individuals' health. Now, the good news flip side of that is that we saw a remarkable tripling of use of telehealth or virtual care in that time period. And even more impressive was that the satisfaction rate, customer satisfaction with telehealth was just terrific. Of those that had a telehealth experience, whether it was phone or internet, in that short time period, 89% said they were satisfied or highly satisfied with the experience. And the individuals in the survey that reported using a smartphone app to manage an existing medical condition might think in terms of diabetes, sleep problems, heart conditions. 97% of those individuals describe that as valuable or very valuable. Yeah, this is very, very interesting data. My firm does a lot of advisory work in the space. So we work with a lot of health systems and uh, help them with their digital health and digital transformation roadmaps. And obviously, over the last three months, in the wake of the pandemic, telehealth and virtual care models have become front and center in their overall business strategies. And so uh, the numbers that uh, came out of your survey are are just validation for what we are seeing on the ground. You know, interestingly, I also saw another uh, survey that was published recently, I think it was by Fair Health, where uh, the increase in uh, telehealth claims uh, is of the order of uh, 4,000% in uh, 
over the last one year and you know there are regional differences and you know some regions are higher and the others are not as high but you mentioned anxiety and uh, so some of the claims also reflect the fact that uh, there's a lot of anxiety among patients who are unable to take care of themselves through using conventional access to healthcare so we're clearly in the middle of a very interesting transition is what it looks like and i hear that uh, 80 to 90% of outpatient care could potentially shift to some kind of a virtual care model and some of your survey you know results seem to be indicating that we are headed in the direction so what are your views on this shift specifically as it relates to access to care for the population served by your member health plans well we're absolutely thrilled i am happy to report that a number of our members were really in the vanguard of this movement if you think about upmc in pittsburgh or select health which is part of intermountain in utah or of course kaiser permanente have been very early adopters of the technology options and really helped spark ACHP to lobby successfully over a year ago for inclusion of telehealth in Medicare Advantage. And so we are so pleased to see much of the rest of the world now seeing what we've long seen in terms of the convenience, the lower cost that is available. I mean, you really open up access to many, many more people. And I think that the COVID-19 crisis uh, really drew that in sharp relief as we saw people that otherwise could not get access to medical services finally could have it with a click of a button on a device. That said, we have also seen that inequities in our society play out in this area as well as so many others today. And so the number of individuals that do not have broadband, that do not have smart devices, right now CMS has put in place waivers for audio-only services, but there are concerns about whether or not that will hold, especially if it would be factored into what's known as risk adjustment calculations in the future. So there are some unknown questions there. We certainly hope that Congress will finally move forward with broadband legislation as one step in terms of closing the digital divide. But there are other things that need to occur, certainly. And then I'm going to be honest, we are worried that some providers will hurry back to the in-person visits in part because they have bricks and mortar businesses that rely on the fee-for-service payments, not just of the visit, but often a lot of additional tests and checks and things that can be run in person, whether critically necessary and appropriate or not. So as much as we see the public attitudes moving very quickly and being very pleased with these alternatives, we're not certain yet about the providers. And we know from our own health plans that 
they really needed to approach this as a partnership with clinicians every step of the way in terms of what areas of care are best suited to virtual versus the ones that are better in person. You know, one of the, it shouldn't be a surprise, but many seem surprised that behavioral health or mental health care is especially effective done virtually, Patty. And when you think about it, these are populations that maybe are not as comfortable out in society at any time, let alone when there is the threat of a coronavirus infection. They may have transportation issues or other chronic conditions that make in-person visits challenging. And many of our health plans report that patients actually sticking to scheduled appointments virtually is higher than the rates that they were seeing pre-pandemic in person. Yeah, you made several very important points and there's a lot to unpack from what you said, but I'll just touch on a couple, especially as it relates to digital health, which is kind of what uh, we focus on in our conversation. And of course, the policy environment uh, is a very integral part of that in uh, driving adoption rates uh, for digital health technologies. So you mentioned the policy environment as it relates to for telehealth, uh, some of the waivers uh, for uh, some conditions and devices and so on. And at least for the moment, uh, telehealth is uh, at a parity with in-person visits. But to your point, there are other aspects of costs uh, that are stranded that uh, come into play when things go back to normal. From the patient or the consumer standpoint, there's also the question of, uh, you mentioned it as a digital divide, and especially for underserved populations with broadband uh, connectivity issues and so on. There is the affordability aspect of it. There is the uh, transparency to the costs of care or costs of uh, the enablers for care, such as devices and so on. Where do you see all that today and how do you really support your member populations in sort of wading through this thicket of uh, these new tools, technologies, modalities, and uh, get the care that they need, but also not find themselves at the receiving end of unexpected uh, costs? Well, those are terrific questions, Patty. And we always try to start with evidence and the wisdom of clinicians when it comes to appropriateness of care, what care being delivered, when, how, where, et cetera, clinicians talking to their patients. So that's always the starting point for these conversations as far as the Alliance of Community Health Plans is concerned. Then we very quickly want to layer on the value discussion. There's been talk and effort in this country for an awfully long time about moving from our volume-based fee-for-service system to a value-based system that rewards outcomes as opposed to just number of procedures. And I would certainly put virtual care into that value-based model approach. And again, clinicians and patients are going to guide much of this, but 
if a clinician has a diabetic patient, they should be able to think through how much of that can be remote monitoring, emailing, the occasional video check-in, and then when does the patient really need to come in for certain lab work or tests or procedures. So that's just one tiny little example, but it's probably going to be a mix. And ideally, you want that clinical team, not just an MD, but an entire team to be paid a certain amount of money to care for that diabetic. And they work out sort of the best formula, if you will, in a value-based arrangement. And just as an aside, but I think it's an important one, throughout this pandemic, we have seen that so many of the delivery systems, physician group practices, hospitals, et cetera, that were so heavily reliant on volume-driven revenue and fee-for-service that they encountered very severe cash shortages very quickly in the crisis. If you were to talk to uh, clinical teams, physician groups that were in more of the value-based arrangements, they continued to receive those steady payments throughout the crisis. And it meant that they were able to focus on patient care during a crisis as opposed to their revenue stream. Very interesting. What about price transparency? Do you have any specific thoughts on that, especially as it relates to all the new modalities of care in a predominantly virtual care environment, you know, digital health tools and devices and, and the like. We are bullish on price transparency and we have a number of members that have been far out in front with uh, consumer tools for very personalized price and quality information. I'm thinking about Priority Health in Michigan and Health Partners in Minnesota, Presbyterian in New Mexico and many others where a consumer is not only looking up a potential price of a service, but it's their out-of-pocket cost and it factors in their own deductible, where they are in that deductible. It tells them different locations where they could go and get the service so they can think about travel time and convenience or if there is a virtual option. And many of these tools also marry in quality data so that they can shop for value, if you will. And in fact, we are seeing that happening in all of the plans that I mentioned. And it's terrific news because the patients want to go to those higher value sites and offerings and options, and both the plan and the individual member end up uh, saving dollars. So when you then come over to a policy discussion, what we have put forward for the policy community is a framework for transparency tools that would be along these lines of geared toward the individual consumer, where they are with respect to their own coverage options, where they're located, giving that quality data, et cetera. So we've put out a framework for certifying an independent certification of those tools. And what we are doing over the next several months is inviting many other stakeholders to help us refine this and move it forward. 
in the hopes that we could really offer an innovative, flexible, independent certification as a way to help consumers make their own choices. And uh, the certification presumably will really uh, help uh, consumers kind of navigating their way through all of the multiple options that are being offered to them. Now, I want to go back to the point that you made about the digital divide and uh, uh, the, the needs of the underserved uh, sections of our population. One topic that keeps coming up in these conversations is uh, social determinants of health. Is your association uh, doing any work in this regard? And can you share any highlights of any of the research that you've done or any of the successes that you've had in uh, using social determinants of health to better serve your uh, you know, member populations? Yes, and importantly, it all ties to what our own member companies are doing in their communities. And that's where we learn and identify best practices that we can then share much more broadly. So I am very pleased to say that, again, ACHP members have a long understood the connection between unmet social needs and disparity in health outcomes. The evidence is very clear. And so a couple of the areas that our members have really gotten out in front, one is around food insecurity. And a number had programs dubbed food pharmacy or food as medicine because the data is overwhelming in terms of your health and nutrition. And it's actually one of the areas, Patty, in the social needs space where you can have a significant impact in a very short period of time. And I think now with unemployment of 40 million or so Americans, and we are seeing the tragic long lines at the various food pantries, that right. this is so important. So you care are a member in Wisconsin, which has a significant Somali population and has long also had very culturally appropriate meals or Geisinger in central Pennsylvania, which not only has the food offering and they actually do it as a writing out a script to go and get your healthy food, but they pair that with things such as cooking classes for individuals to make certain that it's fun and enjoyable and they know what to do with these vegetables and, and things that they might be getting. Uh, several of our members are also partnering in their communities around the homeless population. UPMC is a real leader in that and being able to partner with other social service agencies where a UPMC comes in and helps to coordinate and manage care for those individuals. So that's a, another a good example. Just since the pandemic, Pacific Source out in the Pacific Northwest has turned its entire 2020 grant-making program to funding healthcare services for the vulnerable populations most impacted by COVID-19, which of course we see across the United States, communities of color in particular that have really uh, been the victims of this awful pandemic. So those are a few of the different 
very successful approaches that we see in one of our members, and then often we can help to carry it across to others, write it up, share it with the policy community, et cetera. I am actually familiar with uh, the Geisinger example that you talked about, uh, the Fresh Food Pharmacy Initiative, and how just making fresh food available to populations that are at risk, especially the ones that have multiple comorbidities and so on, and, and, the, and the evidence is, uh, is clearly documented. I've also, one of my earlier guests on this podcast was the CEO of the Parkland Center of Clinical Innovation in Dallas. They have done something similar with regards to prenatal care and, uh, you know, young mothers at risk of premature birth uh, for, the, for the children. And uh, again, access to nutritious, uh, fresh food has been, uh, you know, clearly demonstrated as a factor in uh, improving the, the health of those populations. So, very interesting stuff there. Thank you so much for sharing those uh, examples. We are uh, unfortunately coming up to the end of our time. I'd love to continue this conversation some more, but I just want to end with one uh, broad question. What are your members doing today in terms of planning for a post-pandemic era? What kind of long-term shifts are they anticipating and planning for, especially as it relates to digital health and virtual care models? Well, I can tell you they are very committed to the virtual care option for patients, and they are now working to ensure that there is good, safe, and secure, and private guardrails included in all of those communications, and that it's going to sync up nicely with a person's electronic medical records, that everything is kind of tied together in a coherent fashion for the patient and the clinical team and other technology investments that they may need to expand those services, working an awful lot with the provider community, especially perhaps some of the specialty areas that might not have had as much exposure or experience prior to the outbreak and are really quite hungry for the education and the training and the best practices to continue that. Of course, we're working on the policy level to think through those issues around reimbursement over the long term and the regulatory environment, hopefully in a value-based setting. We don't believe that it advances health in this country or affordability if at the end of this crisis, we simply have a whole bunch more fee-for-service codes. That will not get us forward in our healthcare progression, if you will. So we're very focused on that. Some of the other things our companies are thinking about is their own workforce and more flexibility for their workforces, of course. They're giving a lot of thought during what will clearly be an economic at least slow down, if not recession, for an extended period of time, growth in Medicaid, growth in the individual market, as well as some number of uninsured. So our plans are focused a great deal on being able to serve those individuals who find themselves in a different coverage situation than maybe they were just a couple of months ago. So those are just a few of the things on their minds. Cece, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. And uh, I look forward to uh, following all the great work that the ACHP is doing. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. 
subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.